0: Welcome to episode 361 of Live Happy Now. This week, we're celebrating Earth Day. So today, we're going to ask not what our planet can do for us, but what we can do for our planet. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week, I am joined by Dana Ellis Hunnis, an assistant professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and author of Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. As you'll soon hear, Dana is both passionate and knowledgeable about issues such as food security, climate change, and the health of both humans and animals. She's here to talk about how we can create a healthier, happier, and more environmentally friendly life and even get our kids involved. Dana, thank you so much for coming on Live Happy Now.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And it's perfect timing because we have Earth Day coming up. So we wanted to talk to you. You've written such a thoughtful and well-researched book. And to kick things off, I wanted personally to find out what made you want to write this book.
1: Yeah, there were a few things that really compelled me to write this book. One of them was definitely the research I did for my dissertation in Ethiopia, learning all about climate change, food security, and the issues that people are living with in a country that really depends on the rain for their agriculture. And then the second thing that really compelled me was giving birth to my son who was so tiny, not even six pounds at birth and looking down at him and realizing that, you know, we only have this one planet and the planet that he's growing up in, you know, it has some things that are endangering it. And so um, really, I think the combination of those two things, just, it was my way of dealing with all my concerns to research and to write everything I put down in this book.
0: You know, we get insulated because, especially if you live in a city where it's your food is brought to you, you we're almost like children being catered to by a very kind nanny. You know, everything <laughs> is just brought to us, we can get everything that we need, and we tend to forget that the world doesn't operate like that.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, in many countries around the world that are not nearly as developed as ours is, you know, people live off the land and they really do depend on the rain for being able to grow their food if they don't have, you know, the agricultural inputs like irrigation and wells and things like that. So it really does put it into perspective. And I'll tell you, you know, we have our own little community garden plot up on campus, and it kind of does make you appreciate just what goes into growing food.
0: Right. It's a little tougher than walking over to the bin and <laughs> picking the most attractive one.
1: <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well,
0: and in your book, it's really eye opening and frankly, a little overwhelming at times to see what we have created. And, you know, I've had conversations with people who feel like we're too far around the bend. So it's like, what's the point of even trying right now? What is your take on people who have that mindset?
1: I mean, I guess I would say that makes me a little sad to kind of just throw in the towel because You know, I think if each and every one of us does try to do our part and make the planet a little bit safer, a little bit healthier for both ourselves and our children, I think if a lot of us take these little actions that I talk about in my book, I think really we actually can make a difference. And so I really, I mean, it is an overwhelming topic. I do admit that. And I will also admit, you know, the first few chapters of my book are a little depressing when you (laughs) read them, but... With that said, I mean, the second half of the book really is 21 things that we can all do right now to make a difference and to not feel so hopeless. And so that's what I want really, you know, people to take away is, yes, I understand. I get it. I've been there. It feels depressing, but if you do something I tell you, you feel empowered. You feel like you're making a difference and it can make all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah, and even that process of starting to educate yourself about what's going on a little bit more, like beyond just our little pocket of the world to start learning about it, that's a huge step toward making change, isn't it?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. And that's one thing you know I've been very fortunate to be able to do is in my research and just in my own life, I've been able to see, other places around the world and learn how are people living and what are they doing to make a difference or what are they doing that's more environmentally friendly. And so I do think, you know, if we get into our own little silos and just kind of put our blinders on, that can make things definitely tougher than if we try to look at a a wider perspective on things. And so
0: where do people start? Because I I know there are people who are interested in preserving the planet. We got to take care of this but then it's like, I don't even know where to start. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's so many changes they feel like they have to make. So what's your advice on those baby steps?
1: Yeah, I absolutely say if you had to just choose one thing because it's just, you know, life is overwhelming right now and there's a lot we all have to take care of, whether that's children or parents, if we're in that sandwich generation. You know, if there's only one thing you can do, the most impactful thing you can do is look at your meals. Truly, there's three, sometimes four or five, depending on how many meals you eat in a day, times a day that you can have an environmental impact and also a health impact. We all want to live more healthfully, too. So, absolutely, if you only have the bandwidth to try one thing, it's really start looking at your plate and see where we can make practical adjustments. And I do talk about that as well in the book.
0: Yeah, and can we dig into that a little bit more? Because a lot of times when people are talking about changing their meals, it's for diet reasons. Like I wanna lose weight or I wanna be healthier. But you say it really makes a difference in the earth if we start in our own homes and now you're breaking it down even further, like start on our plate. So what does that mean? What's that going to look like for us?
1: Right, well, the nice thing about that, looking at your plate is not only is it beneficial for the environment and it absolutely can be, but it's also incredibly beneficial for our health. So the lovely thing about it is we're really, you know, packing a one-two punch. We're doing two things simultaneously. And I absolutely agree. A lot of people, you know, do look at the food on their plate as, you know, I wanna be healthier. I wanna maybe lose a few pounds. And then the great thing about what I'm talking about, this plant-forward, plant-based diet, is that it really can reverse certain diseases like heart disease, diabetes, even obesity, and or prevent a lot of these diseases while at the same time being more environmentally friendly and you're not producing as many emissions, you're using less water, you're using less land, you're preserving habitat around the world. So that's the beautiful thing. And when I say a plant forward or plant-based diet, what I mean is pack your plate you know, full of vegetables, full of whole grains, full of fruits, nuts and seeds. And then you know you won't even notice you're missing the standard American fare of meat or chicken or things like that.
0: And what is the difference environmentally with plant-based and meat?
1: Well, I'll put it into perspective this way. On one acre of land, you can grow about 10,000 times more calories of plants than you can if you were, you know, growing a cow or, you know, beef on that land. So, I mean, that's a humongous difference. And in terms of emissions, you're saving about 90% of the emissions if you're plant-based versus If you're eating, you know, like a standard American diet full of meat and dairy products. And in fact, if everyone on the planet went primarily plant-based, we would only need about one quarter of the land that we do right now to feed everybody. So that would mean we could feed, you know, millions, billions more people on the planet. Not that I'm saying we should, I'm just saying we can when we're talking
0: about being able to use this land, how can that change our ability to feed ourselves and our communities?
1: Right. Well, I mean, if you're taking kind of like a world view, when we're talking about, you know, how are we going to feed the growing world population? Because right now we're nearly 8 billion people on this planet. And by the end of the century, we're expected to be close to 11 billion people. And if everybody on the planet eats like we do here in the United States and other Western countries, no, I don't think the land as it stands will sustain us because people will want to eat more meat in these other developing countries. And the way we grow food today, I don't believe that is sustainable. And so that's why it really is critical and so important that those of us who eat far too much meat do really pare back so that, we can grow enough food to feed everybody. Cause when you feed an animal, you know, it's a middleman, you're feeding an Mm -hmm. animal thousands of calories and you're only getting a few hundred calories out. So it's completely inefficient and it wastes so many resources that could go to feeding humans.
0: But it's kind of a hard sell for, (laughs) for, I lived in Texas for many years and before that I grew up in Nebraska and both of those are very fond of their beef. So it's a pretty tough sell to tell people this is the way we're going to be healthier and improve the planet. So how do you kind of present that? What's your best marketing pitch, basically, for (laughs) helping us give up some of this beloved beef and switching instead to more plants in our lives?
1: I mean, that's a really great question. And I try to frame things to people as I don't want you to think about what you're giving up. I want you to think about what you're adding to your life. And so for a lot of people, you know, I know it's kind of hard to have a long-term approach to things, but if we really do cut back on our consumption of meat and dairy and add, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables and all of these whole grains and legumes that I was talking about earlier, and maybe some of these, you know, plant-based meats that are out there, if we're really craving that flavor or texture you know, we're adding things rather than necessarily thinking about what we've taken away. And for people who think I'm telling them you have to be vegan, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm not telling people you have to be vegan, but I am telling people, look, if we want to have a habitable, sustainable planet that will feed our children and their children, that's not a hothouse earth that, you know, maybe we can't grow enough food. I think we all need to be more thoughtful and considerate about what we are putting on our plates.
0: That's well said. And as we become more mindful of that, what kind of changes would we see in the environment and how is that going to start helping the earth?
1: Right. Well, I mean, immediately we would see that we require less water to grow feed for animals. And so that water instead could be used to replenish the aquifers and the water table that has been depleted. And so I think... Hopefully, we would see that the earth would be a little bit, you know, moister, there'd be fewer wildfires. And of course, this would take time. You know, it's not like it would happen overnight, but it would be a slow progression. And same thing with the Amazon. We would see they would not need to cut down so much of the Amazon rainforest. And so it could regenerate and the water cycles could regenerate. And that beautiful, lush forest that provides us with so much oxygen and water vapor and helps kind of control the climate in a way would help, you know, would regenerate because when you leave nature alone, it has this amazing capacity to kind of come back to its natural state.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had the good fortune of being able to go to Antarctica on a ship Mm -hmm. and one of the people on there was Dr. Steve Running, who Mm -hmm. won the Nobel Peace Prize for an Inconvenient Truth Research and uh-huh. he talked about that. We, I said, well, you know, wh- talked about what's going on with our planet. And he said, the earth will find a way to survive. She may right. need to get rid of us first. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think, was a really strong statement, but a big wake up call for me. Like, if we don't take care of our planet, she will find a way to survive. But we might not like what it means for us.
1: No, and I completely agree with that statement. Absolutely. I mean, the planet will survive beyond us. My biggest fear is, yes, how will we go down and how many other species will we take with us?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so changing mindset is so huge because we have these grassroots people that are doing it. There's people like yourselves. There's a lot of people who are working toward this, but it's not the majority. How do you get it to a tipping point? where more people are saying, all right, yeah, we want to work on this. We do want to save our planet. We want to live healthier, longer lives.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really great question. My argument would be, I disagree that it's not the majority, because if you look at some research out of Yale, you know, two thirds of Americans do actually believe in climate change. And Maybe not two-thirds believe it's urgent, but two-thirds do believe in climate change and that it's a problem. So I think if we depend on the government to solve this for us or, you know, world organizations like we saw at COP26 in Glasgow, if we wait for these you know, big groups to take this on. I agree. I think it's not necessarily going to happen. And that's why at this grassroots level, individuals really do need to do something, in my opinion, whether it's, you know, eat more plant-based or buy clothing that's made out of, you know, natural materials like cotton or or hemp or things of that nature, just because, you know, every little bit counts. Every little Mm -hmm. bit counts when you're talking about the planet and the environment.
0: And that's great because I think so many of us think we have to take extreme steps. We have It needs to be extreme measures because we are in kind of hitting a dire situation. But so I love the fact that you say like every little bit helps because we don't always feel like it does.
1: No, and it's true. And that's another thing I do talk about a little bit in the book is I say, look, try one thing today. And if you're successful at it, which I think you will be and can be, maybe try something else tomorrow or next week and build on what you're doing. It doesn't have to be one and done and it doesn't have to be none and done. It can be one today. Oh my gosh, I saw I was very successful at that. Let's see what I can add on tomorrow. And yeah, baby steps can really empower you and help you realize that that you are making a difference and then educating others, which I talk about a lot as well. You know, if people don't know, it's hard to care and it's hard to make a difference and it's hard to take action on something you may not really understand or be aware of.
0: Yeah. And so educating our children too, is a huge part of this, raising them up with that mindset. How do parents start doing that?
1: I think, you know, in our house, it's just part of the natural lexicon. We just talk about it kind of all the time. And we get our, I mean, really we get our son involved. Like he, you know, we were up at the community garden this morning and we were out there picking arugula from our garden and he was down fetching water because apparently the irrigation was, you know, turned off. And so we did, we had to go fetch water and take it back up to the plot. And so I think if you get your children involved from an early age and don't make it feel onerous, make it into a fun family activity, it does come more naturally and they will kind of almost autonomously and automatically become little environmentalists themselves.
0: Oh, we love that. (laughs) And I also love that you brought up the community gardens because you talk about CSAs and community gardens and the role that they play in improving the environment. So talk about what they do, because I think they just community gardens are just the coolest thing. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about how beneficial they were.
1: Right. Well, so we belong to both. We joined a CSA, which stands for community supported agriculture. And so every week we get this giant box, I kid you not, of vegetables and herbs and other greens from a local farm that's, you know, maybe 20, 30 miles away here in Los Angeles. And it's just, I mean, you would be spending three times as much in a grocery store to buy this amount of greens. It's just beautiful. So not only are you supporting your local farmers and contributing to the local economy, you're also getting really super healthy, farm-fresh produce delivered right to your door without the use of plastic. And then as far as community gardens are concerned, you know, a lot more urban areas are having them now. And so you can join and you basically are putting in what's called sweat equity, which means you work on the garden, but in return, you get to choose what goes in it. And you also get to reap the rewards of what you have sown, literally, Um, (laughs) you know, you get to eat what you've grown.
0: In addition to getting all this fresh food and being able to be with your neighbors, you say there's a lot of other benefits to having community gardens or growing our own food. So can you talk about what some of those benefits are?
1: I think some of those benefits are really both, you know, spending time in nature has proven psychological benefits on well-being. Working with others on a common goal also, you know, has really wonderful benefits for your emotions and just for connections, connecting with other people. And then, of course, being physically active while working on the garden has many health benefits, cardiovascular, fresh air. Other benefits of community gardens include just understanding and being one with nature and understanding how food is grown and realizing that, you know, Yes, it shows up at the grocery store, but when there are supply chain issues, that can be a major problem. And so if you have the ability to grow some of your own, then that kind of gives you a little buffer. And then in areas that are, you know, food deserts or food insecure, if you have the ability to grow some of your own produce, then that can be a little bit of an economic buffer for you.
0: And you can even do it indoors. Like if you're even in an apartment, you can have your tiny little inside garden. Like you don't have to have live on acreage to be able to have your own garden.
1: No, that's very true. In fact, we live in a condo and we don't have land. So on our balcony, we have like three, four large pots that we've grown basil in and we've grown tomatoes. And we've grown other herbs and we've made meals out of it. We've made our own pesto without the cheese because we don't eat cheese in our house. But it's delicious when you get it literally that moment from your own little garden. I mean, it just it can make a meal.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people during the pandemic and it has continued, I don't know if we're done with it yet or not anyway. So like, because we use the term post pandemic, but are we, I don't know, but people suddenly became aware in a very uncomfortable way, how much we depend on the grocery store, having what we need. And it didn't always happen that way. So did you see an increased interest in say, growing your own food because of that?
1: I definitely saw an increased interest in making your own food. I know a lot of people went on the make your own sourdough bandwagon, (laughs) including my own husband. Um, Yeah, I know other people who, you know, were more interested in the community gardens because not only did it get them out into nature when otherwise perhaps they had to be in lockdown, but also just, I think people are kind of craving that oneness with each other or with nature just something they can interact with
0: and the gardens certainly do both of those things Mm -hmm. and yeah and so like you mentioned earlier, I know that we're getting close on time, but you had mentioned earlier, and this really is a striking book because it is two parts. Like the first part is a horror story. No, it's, <laughs> it's like, here's where we're at and here's what we've done. And here's what's going to happen if we continue down this path. Mm-hmm. But then the second part is like, ta-da, happy. <laughs> it's very optimistic and it gives actionable advice. And what is it that gives you the most hope and optimism about the future of our planet?
1: Yeah, I think what gives me the most hope about the future of our planet is that people are more aware now than they were. I mean, it's taken time, but there is so much activism now about the environment and climate change. And it's just it's constantly being discussed, maybe not perhaps in the way I talk about it in the book and particularly not with some of the actions I recommend for what we can do, because a lot of the talk is still about, oh, reducing your you know use of oil or reducing the amount of electricity you use. And I mean, those are, you know, those are worthy causes, too. But I think what people need to realize is there are actually more impactful things that we can do even beyond that, which does in some ways require government action versus what we can do as individuals. And so I think that's what gives me the most hope is that there is an interest for what can I do and what can I do now to make a difference?
0: What is it that you hope that people most get from reading your book?
1: Right. If I had to choose what I would want people most to take away from this book, it's that really you can make a difference and you don't need to feel despondent. You don't need to feel overwhelmed on what feels like an overwhelming topic because it it really can feel overwhelming. I've been there. I know what it feels like. And so in a way, this is a memoir to me because it's all, all the things that I have done to make a difference. And it's all the things that I encourage others to do to make a difference. But it's a recipe. It's step one, it's step two, it's step three, it's step four. And you don't have to feel alone in this. There are plenty of other people interested, wanting to do good. So I think that's what I want people to take away.
0: That's terrific. Dana, I appreciate you taking time to sit down with me today, talk about this. Like I said, we're going to tell people how they can find you and how they can learn more, because this is an important conversation and obviously one that we need to keep having for years to come.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm grateful for your very thoughtful questions and appreciate your time as well. That
0: was Dana Ellis Hunnis, author of Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. If you'd like to learn more about her book, follow her on social media, find out how you can get a free copy of her book, visit our website at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.